Um, we're going to be in Luke chapter 7 today, verses 11 through 17. The title of this message is Salvation Illustrated, the Dead Come to Life. Salvation Illustrated, the Dead Come to Life. Let's, let's read through the text. Soon afterwards, he went to a city called Nain, and his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. Now, as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a sizable crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said to her, Do not weep. And he came up and touched the coffin, and the bearers came to a halt. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. The dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Fear gripped them all, and they began glorifying God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. This report concerning him went out all over Judea and in all the surrounding district. Father... We come to you this morning, and we just ask that you open this word up to us today, that you show us wonderful things, that you help us to see Christ and his glory and his kingdom. Lord, draw us to yourself today and open our eyes to, to, to see you more clearly and open our ears to hear your voice. Lord, we thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. So, we're in Luke chapter 7, and the first event that we, that we talked about the last time I preached was Jesus healing the centurion's servant, and how he healed that servant by command. And in this, and, and wasn't even there present when he did it. And this is the very next event. He's, he's left there, and now he's traveling, and he goes to Nain. And, and this is the first of three incidents where the Lord actually physically raises someone from the dead. The second was the ruler's daughter, the, the synagogue ruler's daughter. And the third was Lazarus. Now... This, in, this incident that we're looking at today, it's a demonstration of the Lord's sovereignty over life and death. But it's also an illustration of what it looks like when He brings someone to life spiritually. This is an illustration. It's, a, it's an example for us. It's a picture of what it looks like for someone to be given spiritual life. And, and something that we need to understand is that all of the Lord's signs. You know, they, they didn't call them miracles like we do. They said they're signs. What sign will you do for us? All of, And there's a reason why they called them signs. What's a sign do? It points you to something. It, it communicates something to you. It's not about the sign. It's about what it's pointing to and what it's communicating that's why they called them signs. And all of the Lord's signs, these miracles, pointed to a greater spiritual reality. You know, there's a lot of bad theology and bad eschatology that comes from focusing on the signs. 
and focusing on the physical miracle that occurred rather than seeing what it's trying to show us, what it's pointing us to. Um, I want to read you a couple of uh, texts. John chapter. I'm going to go to John chapter five first, and y'all can just stay where you're at. I'm going to I'm going to read a couple of things to you in John five, starting in verse twenty one. This is about people being raised from the dead. Jesus says, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but He's given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, He who hears My word... And believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. I'm going to read you one more thing from Revelation chapter 20 and verse 6. It says, Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. The first resurrection is what Jesus is talking about. There in John 5:25, when he says, "Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live." That's what happens when a person is born again. When Christ says, "My sheep hear my voice," when they hear His voice coming to them through His Word, and they're given life. They're brought to life. That's that first resurrection. It's not a physical resurrection. It's a spiritual one. But what we're looking at in this text today in Luke chapter 7 is a physical resurrection that mirrors that spiritual resurrection to life. So let's look at verse 11. Soon afterwards, this is after he had healed the centurion's servant, he went to a city called Nain, And his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. Nain was a small city about 20 miles from Capernaum. And so they traveled there. And as Jesus traveled there, his disciples, they go along with him. But there's also a large crowd of curious onlookers that are following a large crowd, and this the size of this crowd varied from day to day depending on how hard the truth was that Jesus preached in his sermon that day. If he preached a really hard sermon, they would get down pretty small, but then he would work a few miracles. He would, he would heal some people or 
go to a new city and people would want to see. So then the, the crowd would grow again. So the, the, the size of that crowd fluctuated. There was the core of his chosen disciples and a few others that followed him. But then there's this large crowd. And on this day, there was a large crowd that followed in verse 12 says, Now as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out. The only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a sizable crowd from the city was with her. So the first thing you see was Jesus has got a large crowd following him, and then there's a sizable crowd from the city that are there mourning that have followed this, this woman whose son has died. So there's a lot of people there. And there's a funeral procession, and it's carrying a dead man out of the city for burial. Now, his mother's there. He's her only child. She's a widow. Now, this is very problematic for her. And we would miss this if we didn't. Do you remember the story of Ruth, the book of Ruth? This woman is a lot like Naomi. In Jewish culture in that day, and if we don't understand the culture and the society, we would, we would miss a lot of what is being shown us in this text. In that culture and that society, it's an agrarian society, it's very patriarchal, and your inheritance passes through the male lineage. That's the reason why Naomi was in such desperate straits in the book of Ruth, if you remember, Naomi's husband had died and her sons had died. And so she goes back to Israel. She's been off in, in Edom and she goes back to Israel and, and or Moab. She'd been in Moab. But anyway, they go back to Israel and, and Ruth goes with her. But here's the problem that Naomi has and the problem that this woman has is that being a widow and not having a male child she is completely cut off from any inheritance that she has in the kingdom. Completely cut off. Death has separated her from any inheritance that she might have in the kingdom of God. In the book of Joshua, whenever they're conquering the promised land, God's people have come in. God has, has brought them in with Joshua, and they conquer the land, and they divide it up among all the tribes. And then among the tribes, it's divided up and apportioned out to all the families in all the tribes. And provision is made for every member. Every single person that is a citizen of this kingdom has provision made for them in this kingdom. And the provision is agrarian. It's land. It's property. It's homes. All of this stuff comes and it's passed down from generation to generation. And it's your inheritance and it's your provision and that's the way the economy works. And that's where your inheritance is. Well, with this woman in our text today, like Naomi, she is completely cut off. And if you remember from, from the book of Ruth, what did Naomi need? She needed a redeemer. She needed one like her, a kinsman redeemer, one like her, to redeem her and restore that connection that she'd lost because of death. And death comes because of sin. This woman's in the same miserable situation. 
She's lost her husband, and now she's lost her son, and she's completely cut off from whatever inheritance or means of provision that she might have. And that's the same thing with us. We're in the same boat. Because of sin and death, we're completely cut off from the kingdom of God. In our natural state, we're completely cut off. And so, you know, Paul describes this in Ephesians 2. He's describing the Gentile world. He's saying you were without hope and without God in the world. And that's the natural state of every human being cut off. No inheritance, no provision. And a crowd is there with her. They're with her to mourn for her and, and to mourn with her over her circumstances. Now, the root cause of this entire miserable situation that she's in is sin. That's the root. That's the root cause of our problem is sin. I'm going to turn over to Genesis 2. Look at it with me. Genesis 2, 15 through 17. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. And then Genesis three seventeen. Then to Adam, to the man, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Sin, disobedience to God. And then in Romans 5, in verse 12, says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. The wages of sin is death. All of our problems and all of our suffering and all of the misery of life and, and death, our condition is a result of sin. It's a result of sin that began in Genesis 2. It began in Genesis 3, excuse me. And we have, we're reaping what we have sown, what was sown there in Genesis 3. The day that you eat of this fruit, the day that you rebel against God, that you choose your own way rather than listening to Him and trusting Him, then you will die. 
Now, this young man being carried out in this coffin, he's a picture, spiritually speaking, of every single human being descended from Adam. He's dead. He's dead, and, and there's nothing he can do about it. We talked about this in the quipping hour. This young man is dead, and there's nothing he can do about it. There's nothing his mother can do about it. And there's nothing anybody else in the crowd can do about it either. He's dead. Ephesians 2, 1 tells us, You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And there's nothing you can do about it. Everyone in the world, apart from Christ, is spiritually dead. Even if they're physically alive. And if that condition doesn't change... They're going to be buried in the cares and the corruption of this world. And they're going to perish under the wrath of God, which is that second death that is talked about. But they're dead spiritually, and ultimately they're going to perish for eternity. And it's an utterly hopeless situation. Just like this young man in this coffin and this widow who is grieving and this crowd that's mourning with her, which represents the world. It's utterly hopeless situation. Let's look at verses 13 and 14, though. When the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her, and he said to her, Do not weep. And he came up and touched the coffin. And the bearers came to a halt, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. Now, there's some things that we need to look at in, in what's happening here. Number one, no one sought Jesus in this. We, another text that we looked at in Equipping Hour is that there's none who seek after God. Not even one. No one sought Jesus or asked him to give life to the young man. Nobody asked for this. Romans 3.11 says there's none who understands. They didn't know who he was. They didn't understand who he was. They knew he, he was a prophet. They knew he worked some miracles. They could see that. But they didn't understand really who he was. And no one sought him. There's none who seeks for God. Romans 9.15, though, he says, says, For he says to Moses... I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Nobody sought him, but he had mercy on whom he chose to have mercy. He had compassion. Romans chapter 10. Paul is going to quote from Isaiah in chapter 10, verse 20. He says, and Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. And I'm just going to go ahead and read where he quoted from in Isaiah 65. He's quoting from Isaiah 65, in verse 1. And God, speaking through the prophet, says, I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation which did not call on my name. 
Nobody sought for Jesus. There are no seekers after God. Jesus is the one who came to seek and save that which was lost. That crowd that followed after Jesus, they weren't there for God. They were there for bread and circuses. They wanted to be fed, healed, and amazed. But they didn't want the one thing that would give them life, which was Christ Himself as their Lord. And it's still the same today. That's the reason why we have this plague on evangelicalism that says, well, you know, Jesus is in my heart, but I'm on the throne. That's baloney. The only thing that they needed was to have Christ as their Lord. And the only thing that we need is to have Christ as our Lord. But no one seeks for that. And no one was seeking for it then. Nobody asked Jesus for help. But he looked at the dead young man and his helpless mother, and he looked at the hopelessness of the situation. He had compassion for her. He had mercy on her, and he told her not to weep. He went over and touched the coffin. And this is very similar. If you remember the story of the leper that, that spoke to Jesus, and he said, If you will, you can, you can make me well. You can make me clean. And Jesus said, I'm willing and then Jesus touched him. And you remember the, the, the profound significance of that act of touching that leper. If anybody else had touched that leper, they would have been unclean. If anybody else, under the Jewish law, if anybody else had touched that coffin, just like touching the leper, they would have been unclean. They would have been considered unclean and contaminated. By sin and death. And you know what? When anybody else comes into contact with death, they are contaminated. They're dead. But when Jesus comes into contact with death, instead of Him being contaminated by death, death is overwhelmed by the power of His indestructible life. That's what happens when Jesus comes in contact with death. He says, young man, arise. Jesus raised three people from the dead, and He raised all three of them by command. He commanded the young man to arise. He commanded the little girl to get up. And He commanded Lazarus to come forth. And they all immediately obeyed. Why did they obey? Because of the authority of His voice. I'm going to go back to revisit last time's message and go back to verses 6 through 8 of Luke 7. The centurion had sent for Jesus, and it says, Now Jesus started on his way with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but just say the word. And my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority and with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. So what that centurion recognized was Jesus' authority. 
to command creation. Who has authority to command creation? Who speaks? Psalm 33 says, For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. Hebrews 1.3 tells us about Jesus that he upholds all things by the word of his power. He speaks, and it is. Verse 15 says, The dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. I would submit to you today that if you have heard the voice of the Son of God and you've been given life, you will sit up and testify. You will speak. And no one will be able to stop you. If He's given you life, you will speak, and no one will be able to stop you. Paul tells us over in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 13, he says, But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. I'm telling you, if you have been given life and you have seen the glory of God in the face of Christ, you have heard His voice, you're going to testify to it. Because now you have life. And that's what you're looking to. That's what you're hearing. So verses 12 through 15 here in Luke 7, they give us an accurate picture of what happens when a person is saved. We're not saved because we were seeking enlightenment and we finally found Jesus. That's not how it happened. We're not saved because someone does a really good job of stimulating our intellect and emotions until we wisely make the right decision. You know, and we think that way. You know, we are supposed to study to show ourselves approved and rightly divide the word of truth and speak the gospel as succinctly and eloquently as we possibly can. But that's not what saves someone. Speaking the gospel is what someone hears that. They hear his voice speaking through his word and they're saved. It doesn't matter how good a job or not good a job you do presenting it. Don't put your confidence in that. 
What we're saved for, we're saved for one reason and one reason only, and that's that God had mercy on us. He had mercy on us, just like Jesus had mercy on this woman, and He had mercy on her son, and He gave him life. Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. That's what salvation looks like. That's what it means to be given life from the dead. Verse 16 says, Fear gripped them all. And they began glorifying God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. You can imagine the reaction in a crowd. Imagine if we were at a funeral. We've got the casket up here, and there's a... An open casket service, and somebody gets up and walks up and touches the casket, and suddenly the, the corpse sets up and begins to speak. That's what we're talking about here. Imagine the fear if someone who you know for a fact is stone cold dead, they sit up and they start talking. Imagine the fear on the last day when everyone who's ever lived comes out of the tomb. Especially for those who are coming unwillingly and begging the mountains to fall on them and hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. Imagine the fear that gripped the crowd. You know, the good news is that God receives great glory from bringing the dead to life. It's the reason why we exist as His people. It's the reason why we're here is to speak His words and to proclaim His truth. And He is so glorified to use this gospel to bring the dead to life. And Jesus is our great prophet he is a great prophet, like unto Moses, except greater than Moses. Moses led God's people out of bondage in Egypt, but he couldn't lead them into the promised land because of his own sin. Jesus, because he has no sin, is able to bring his people out of bondage to sin and death and lead them to eternal life with him in the new heavens and the new earth because he is the spotless Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Now, remember this large and sizable crowd that is there. There's this large crowd following Jesus. There's this sizable crowd that's there to mourn with the woman, and they're there for the funeral. They represent the world. 
You know, the world looks at the external signs. They look for the blessings and the gifts and the miracles. And then they miss the point. They miss what the sign is pointing to. Verse 17 tells us that this report concerning him went out all over Judea and all the surrounding district. Lots of people have heard the report about Jesus. But very few have actually heard him. In John 10, 27 and 28, it says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Eternal life comes by hearing Him. John six sixty three, Jesus said, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. You know, you can hear, you can see these signs. This crowd, they see the signs, that they see the miracles that Jesus works, and they're amazed. Fear grips them. They're moved. You can see the signs. You can be exposed to the gospel. You can even be moved emotionally. But you really need one thing. You need to hear His voice. Not too long after I was converted, I, I, I had really started reading the Bible. And there's a reason. Some of you that I have talked to, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really adamant about reading the Bible, reading Scripture. God has spoken to us. He's given us His Word. I am one of the top salesmen of Bible reading plans you'll ever meet. Regular absorption of this Word. Why is that? Because the most powerful thing in existence that we have access to is His Word. It is the Spirit that gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you, they are Spirit. In their life, for the spiritually dead, for the physically dead, for that matter, there's only one power in the universe that can give life. And that is the voice of the creator of life, calling that person to life. And there's only one place... That you're going to hear His voice. And I'm not talking about elevating this Bible as like a talisman or some magical thing. It's not the Bible. It's His voice speaking through it. 
I can, I can read this whole Bible to you. And if you don't hear His voice, it's not going to do anything. But there's only one place you're going to hear His voice. And that is from His Word. That is from His Word. And, and I will submit to you that no matter where you're at in life right now, you have one desperate need. If you're struggling in your marriage, you need to hear His voice. If you're struggling with your children, you need to hear His voice. If you're struggling with your health, you need to hear His voice. If you're spiritually dead and perishing, you need to hear His voice. That's one thing I know about every person here. No matter where you're at in life, you need to hear His voice. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. And if you hear His voice and you know that what I'm telling you is the truth, then go where His voice is speaking. Sit under the preaching of this Word. Be much in the reading of this Word. Spurgeon said one time, read lots of good books, but live in the Bible. Live in His Word. The God of all creation has spoken to you. Jesus told some religious people one time, have you not read what was spoken to you? You have no excuse. You know why men are without excuse? Because God has spoken. God has spoken. I pray today that you hear the voice of the Son of God and that you live. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for sending your Son. We thank you for life. We thank you for speaking to us in and through your Son and for communicating life to your people and salvation and grace. Lord, I just pray that everyone here hears your voice in your word. I pray that you put it in our hearts and minds to be much in your word, sitting at your feet and learning from you, no matter what. That is our greatest need. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.